Welcome to this episode of SDI Encounters, a podcast from SDI, the home of spiritual companionship. I'm Anne Lancaster. Learn more about us and our work on our website, sdicompanions.org. In this week's episode, Creative Director Matt Whitney speaks with Imam Jamal Rahman about their July 2021 webinar series, The Fragrance of the Beloved, built upon new revealings and discoveries in the poetry of Rumi through the lens of spiritual companionship. In the truest tradition of spiritual directors and spiritual companions, Rumi asks open-ended questions that lead us to ask penetrating questions of ourselves. He accepts us as we are and opens the way for us to explore what our lives can be in contemplative union with the beloved. Jamal has been studying Rumi for most of his life. Sitting in Jamal's circle of love as you contemplate Rumi's mystic brilliance is a chance to broaden and deepen your concept of spiritual companioning. Learn more about this offering on our website at sdicompanions.org. Thanks for being a part of this Taste of the Divine Garden of Rumi with Imam Jamal Rahman. My name is Matt Whitney. I'm creative director for SDI. It is always a gift to be able to share some time with one another uh, as part of the SDI community. And especially with you, Brother Jamal, thank you for making time for us today. We're going to have just a little discussion around the poetry of Rumi and how that has been a companion for you over the years and in your life, how the Divine Garden appears for you every day. We are here really to give people a taste of what they can expect from our upcoming four-part webinar on Rumi. So maybe we can just have a conversation about that. Maybe just the first one, who is Rumi? Can you give us maybe like just a brief historical picture, paint a picture of who he was? Yes. Uh, Rumi was a 13th century Islamic scholar and mystic who was actually born in what is now called Afghanistan, in that time a part of the Persian Empire. Uh, Long story, he and his father settled in Konya, Turkey. He was Persian from Iran. And his father was a very well-known scholar uh, and mystic. He was the head of a wonderful college that the ruler had established for him there. And uh, Rumi, who was being groomed by his father and other teachers, he became the one who succeeded his father. So in his very early uh, age, in his 20s, I'm told, he became the head of this remarkable college, was a very learned scholar, very promising in his understanding of scripture and sciences, He had a knowledge of the head, you might say. And then, uh, this is a very phenomenal experience or circumstance that occurred uh, in the 13th century. He met Shams-e-Tabriz, who was a Darvish. Darvish is a Persian word for someone who's on the threshold of two worlds, visible world, invisible world. And was kind of a divine hippie fellow and was in possession of, you might say, divine secrets and anybody who's in possession of divine secrets knows that it's like hot coal in your hand you want to share it with somebody and always shams at tabriz prayed oh god is there nobody i can share these divine secrets with no answer but one day the answer came go in this direction you will meet jalaluddin rumi and he met rumi 
And that started a wonderful relationship between Rumi and Shabda Tabriz, who was his teacher, and also became his beloved friend. And the point here is, through this teaching, through this learning with Shamsi Tabriz, Rumi moved from a knowledge of the tongue to a knowledge of the heart. And when his heart opened up, he began to hear wonderful vibrations of words from the invisible world, which he would utter. And his disciples and friends and family members would write them down. And the collection of that has become Rumi poetry. And it, it is also a testimony that when your heart opens up, amazing things can happen. Thank you. There are a couple of things there that struck me. One was Rumi's sort of awakening, which, you know, moving from the language of the tongues to the language of the hearts, and how that came through his, his relationship with his friend, with this person who practiced dervish. Did you have a, a spiritual companion or a teacher? Or is, there, is there a relationship there that you can recall that awoke you to that same kind of transition? I would say it was my parents. And in the Islamic spiritual tradition, traditionally, the parents, they tutor you because they, are, they know the children very well. And we all have different personalities. And in the, in the Sufi curriculum, there is no fixed curriculum. By the way, when I say Sufi, uh, I mean spiritual Islam. There is no fixed curriculum. I might be a person who needs for a cer certain time just a lot of breathing exercises. Another time, deep scholarship. Another time, go out and serve in the world. So it varies quite a lot. So my spiritual companions were my parents, and they directed me to some teachers in the timeline of my life. That has been my training in, in Islamic mysticism. Were your parents also Sufi practitioners? Yes, yes. Okay. And so were their parents. And, and their parents. Oh. <laughs> so it came from that lineage of yeah. uh, Islamic spiritual teachers and healers. Beautiful. Can you maybe share a little bit about the Sufi tradition and how it differs from other traditions within Islamic religion? Yes. And I certainly want to clear up the misunderstanding about what is Sufism. Mm. So Islam, that's the religion, the 6th, 7th century religion. It has two denominations, like Christianity has Catholics and Protestants. Islam has Sunni and Shia. 85% of Muslims in the Muslim world are Sunnis, 15% are Shia. Sufism is not, I repeat, not a denomination. Sufism is simply a heartfelt aspiration to live the spirit. Islam literally means to surrender in peace. And the question is, what are you surrendering? If you read the Quran carefully, one is surrendering one's attachment to one's ego. So that, as the Quran says, you can bring a heart turned in devotion to God. So Sufism is simply a heartfelt aspiration to understand, take to heart the spirit of the teachings, which is in every holy book, really, but in this case, the Quran, and live it. So a Sufi can be a Sunni or a Shia. And a Muslim, which simply means one who is surrendered to God. And here's the confusion, uh, Brother Matt. So now... Anybody can be a Sufi, they say, as long as you're doing the work of surrendering your attachment to your ego. Is that how you understand it? Well, some will insist that you have to be a Muslim. 
So if you ask a Sufi, can a Christian be a, a Sufi? As many Christians are. Can a Jew be a Sufi? In fact, the majority of Sufi leaders in this country are Jewish. Can a Hindu be a Sufi? And a Sufi usually doesn't answer directly. They'll tell you a story. They will say, for example, that, you know, when a Muslim prays, they point the prayer rug in the direction of the Kaaba. Kaaba is that symbolic house draped in black. It's a cubicle square in the Grand Mosque in Mecca. I don't know if you've seen that, uh, Matt. Muslims pray in the direction of the Kaaba. Yeah. And so uh, they point the prayer rug in that direction. So Islamic spiritual teacher will say, but what happens if your prayer rug is inside the Kaaba, not outside, but inside the Kaaba, then does it matter in which direction you put the prayer rug? It doesn't. So that's a vague answer to a question of, do you have to be a Muslim to be a Sufi? You just have to be someone they're suggesting who aspires to evolve in the fullness of their being and be of service to God's creation. That makes you a Sufi. Yes. Thank you. And I think that's the invitation for us. And what I hear when you say, you know, Islam just means surrendering to God, I resonate with that. Huh, yes. I imagine most of us do. We, we want to surrender to God. Yes. We, we long for that. And Rumi was a Sufi mystic, and you are, are a Sufi minister. But just, to, I suppose, to clarify, this invitation to surrendering to God is, is for all of us. And you understand Sufism that way. It's an invitation for us, and a, maybe a posture. And to remember that when you're surrendering, it's not that you are uh, losing who you are. You're gaining your true self. Because what are you surrendering? Your attachment to your ego so that you're bringing divinity and not your ego in the center of your life. So what does that mean from a practical perspective? So here I am speaking to you, to a group of people. So a question I can ask myself is, as I'm speaking right now, am I coming from my ego? And that's okay. We all need the ego. But coming from the ego might mean that I am speaking now trying to impress you. And that's all right too. But coming from a higher self, that's my divine spark. Coming from my divine spark, my answer would be, I really aspire to say something which by grace of spirit will benefit someone. So in that sense, I'm surrendered. I'm not coming from my ego. I'm coming from my divinity, if that is my aspiration and intention. So at every point in my life, I can ask in doing this, in saying this, am I coming from my ego? Or am I coming from my divine higher self in being of service? Is it because I'm attached to the fruits of the service? The money, the prestige, the good name, or I really want to be of genuine service to the other without attachment. That's coming from my higher self. In that sense, I am surrendered. Yeah. So this is interesting because as, as you share that, I'm sitting here and like, what is my intention for running this Zoom call? Like, what is my what is my hope for it? Like, do I wish that thousands of people were on the call right now? Or, you know, is everything yeah. going to work? Is the Wi-Fi signal strong? And yes. like, is that because I want it to look good for my sake or because I want it to be a benefit to, to the spirits? And that's a discernment. I don't have a clear answer to that right now. And maybe that's part of this process of surrendering. It's a discernment process. Can you speak to that a little bit? Absolutely. It, it, it's constant work. It's constant balancing of working in the material world 
in the invisible world. But the most critical thing is the Sufis will say that as you are making this discernment, make sure that you're gentle with yourself. You're compassionate with yourself. It's difficult. It's not easy to have this balance. I've got to take care of the internet. I wish more people would join. What else can I do to promote this? At the same time, I want this to be of service to people who are listening. So this constant discernment, constant balance is what requires me to be compassionate with myself, sincere, patient, and persistent. So these are all divine qualities I'm using continuously. I want to come back to this discernment, but I also, I want to ask you a little more about Rumi. Yes. Do you remember when you were first introduced to the poetry of Rumi? Uh, Ah, yes, yes. You know, my parents, they both passed away now. My late parents were diplomats. And in my formative years, my parents were posted to Iran and Turkey, two countries where Rumi is studied with great devotion. And my father would sometimes send me to some teachers, both in uh, Turkey and Iran. And I I would notice that sometimes I I spent the nights in their houses And I would notice that my teacher would put the Quran in a sort of an elevated space in the house on top of something very high, but would place the books of Hafez and Rumi under the pillow and sleep with it. And that's the first time I came across Hafez and Rumi. And for some reason, I was attracted to Rumi. And then in their teaching, they would teach me the Quran, but couple that with a Rumi poetry. And that is when I, I didn't understand too much of uh, Rumi poetry, but I remember, I remember that great love the teacher had for this poet and how he or she would employ the use of Rumi poetry to elaborate, to illuminate verses of the Quran. And that was my first introduction. And so ever since then, I've been studying the Quran, the verses of the Quran, and also other holy books in tandem, along with verses of Rumi. This notion of supplementing sacred text with poetry, this is an important part of your spiritual practice. Absolutely. For example, I remember in my adolescent years, you know, when when I was almost an adult, I was wondering what career to pursue. And so my teacher gave me this verse of the Quran. If I remember, the verse in the Quran was, seeking only the face of thy sustainer, that one will know peace of mind. So some career which I right, don't forget God. But then I was given a Rumi poetry to go with it. The best translation I found later on was, Rumi said, any business that hides you from the face of your Lord is the essence of unemployment, even though business is its name. So I realized I wanted to get into some work where I would not move away from remembrance of divine spirit. And that sort of formed my career path. But I didn't know what, to, what career that would be. Any business that keeps you away from the face of your sustainer is the essence of unemployment, even though business is its name. (laughs) So that slowly over the years in my 40s brought me to what I really wanted to do. 
It's not that I'm religious or following rituals, but not straying away from remembrance of divine principles. That was important for me. Mm-hmm. And so that means that, for example, uh, if I believe in peace, no wars, but I work in Boeing in a division that produces armaments, and I say, that's just a job. Uh-uh. It's not in keeping with your divine values. I'm, I'm so upset about planetary degradation, but I'm working somewhere where they, they create pollution. It's just a job. You know, it's okay. It's not okay. Any business that keeps you away from the face of Allah is the essence of unemployment, even though business is its name. I also remember, if I may go on, Brother Matt, to encourage me to pray early in the morning. You know, there's, uh, Muslims have five obligatory prayers. And one is early morning, you know, before the sun rises. I was lazy. So the verse in the Quran is, pray in the small watches of the morning. And so the poetry verse is, Rumi said, no one knows, no one knows what makes the soul wake up so happy. No one knows what makes the soul wake up so happy. Just maybe a dawn breeze has blown away the veil from the face of God. That verse touched me, you know. No one knows what makes the soul wake up so happy. Just maybe a dawn breeze, a dawn breeze has blown away the veil from the face of God. Then my teachers began to explain to me, as the Irish say, early in the morning, the veils between this world and the invisible world is very thin. People are sleeping. There are very few vibrations of tension and this and that. That's a good time to connect with what is called the glow of presence. Imam Jamal Rahman is a popular speaker on Islam, Sufi spirituality, and interfaith relations. Along with his interfaith amigos, he has been featured in the New York Times, CBS News, BBC, and various NPR programs. Jamal is co-founder and Muslim Sufi minister at Interfaith Community Sanctuary and adjunct faculty at Seattle University. He is a former co-host of Interfaith Talk Radio and travels nationally and internationally, presenting at retreats and workshops. Jamal's passion lies in interfaith community building. He remains rooted in his Islamic tradition and cultivates a spaciousness by being open to the beauty and wisdom of other faiths. By authentically and appreciatively understanding other paths, Jamal feels that he becomes a better Muslim. This spaciousness is not about conversion, but about completion. I want to go back to something you said about the first thing you, you said about Rumi. Seeking the face removes frustration. This was something like that. Oh, there's another verse in the Quran which says, Truly, in the remembrance of God, do hearts find rest or peace. Yes, that's it. Finding rest and peace. And I think... I don't always feel that sense of of rest or peace when I'm on the spiritual journey. Right. A lot of times there's there's frustration. There's a sense of 
nothing's happening. It's dull. It's boring. You know what I mean? Or sometimes that, that divine spark just does not seem present and everything is veiled. You're just somebody who lives with joy every time I see you. And it's, oh, it's, it's such a witness. And I mean, we all have these seasons, right? We all have these times of these dark nights. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, in fact, uh, there's a verse in the Quran that says, of everything we have created, we have created opposites. We have created opposites. So you might know only God is one. And this is something in, in, in all traditions. The fact that high is defined by low. Rumi says, God turns you from one feeling to another so that you might have two wings to fly, not one. So yes, I will experience joy, but I will feel the ecstasy of joy only because I know what sorrow is. It doesn't mean that I run towards pain and sorrow. And this is very critical. Jamal, don't run towards pain and sorrow and suffering because it has lessons to teach you. I repeat, don't run towards pain and suffering. Just don't run away from it. But there's another point which is very critical that you mentioned, Brother Matt. What would help me? And of course, I had times of being low, sad. This is where spiritual companionship comes into play. It is critical in my life to have what Rumi calls the circle of love. What constitutes a circle of love? Let me call them spiritual companions. We can have all kinds of circles to play golf, to do this, and that's beautiful. But we also all need a, a specific sacred circle that helps the members in that circle to evolve, and we help one another to do that, evolve in the fullness of my being so I can be of authentic service to others. And in several traditions, the same gateways that constitutes members of my spiritual companions. There is love between the members, could be one or two or maybe more. But there is trust, so one can be vulnerable with one another. Without vulnerability, there is no community. And number three is very critical. There is a love of truth, of spiritual truth. It doesn't mean, mean it's about beliefs, about an aspiration to really to, to do that inner inconvenient work, to be of service to one's fellow beings. So when those three gateways are there and we have that circle, in times of sadness, we feel nurturance, nourishment and guidance from that group of spiritual companions. You see, in the past, in Islamic spirituality, uh, before my time, I would be apprenticed to a spiritual teacher, maybe for, for my life. It's not possible these days. So what is a good substitute is to have in my life at the right time that spiritual companions. So I would suggest that go to a spiritual director. I, as a spiritual director, I also help my friend who comes to me to create for them that circle of spiritual companions. And as they're doing that, they come and consult with me again as a spiritual director until that circle has become solid and they're comfortable. And that's there for a long time, maybe for life. And we all need it. So I'll just end with one quote from the Prophet Muhammad, who said, your spiritual practices are only as good as those of your close friends. Choose your close friends. 
your spiritual companions wisely. So it behooves me to have that circle of spiritual companionship. Yes. My understanding is you can be really creative with this question. For example, Rumi is probably somebody I trust who is in your circle of spiritual companionship. You see, in the, in the uh, Islamic um, mystical tradition, they say have spiritual companions in two worlds or several levels of reality. One is in this world where I'm living, I'm talking to you, let's call this the earthly plane. I, I need to create that circle of spiritual companions with help from my spiritual director. But another one which is critical, and I share with everyone who, who comes for consultation and for connection, and to create a spiritual companionship is to go into my inner landscape, what is called sacred sanctuary. And there I summon my inner circle of love. And there the only limitation is my belief system. In that place, I can summon people who are living, who are deceased, people from the angelic world, angels, jinns, devas, animals living or deceased, elements of nature, Merlin the magician, Biblical beings, yes, I do have Rumi in my circle. I have my late parents in my circle and just a few others in my meditative state. Mm -hmm. And all I do is I go into my meditative state, into my sacred sanctuary. And there I summon my inner circle of love. And I just bask in the love and in their teachings, just by being still, that's all. And that, in some Sufi teachings, is a very critical practice to create that spiritual companionship. And some people tell me, Brother Matt, that they can't find anybody to become a spiritual companion. So I really insist they do that inner work of creating that spiritual circle in their meditative state. And guess what? Almost batting 100%, that seems to create that outer circle of love. There's an amazing connection. Everything is interconnected. Yeah. There's a real cultivation of an awareness of these two worlds that Rumi knew and that you know. And I hope is much of the work that we'll get to do as part of this webinar. I hope that we're going to get to explore this, that people who, who come to this webinar will get to explore who might be in that inner circle for themselves. Yes. Yes, yes. And, 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 and in this webinar, we have to experientially talk about and practice what is called the inner inconvenient work. This is something that Rumi was very persistent about. He would say, why are you on planet Earth? Where were you born? You were born for several reasons, but one reason is to evolve into the fullness of your being, to transform your ego from a commanding master into a personal assistant, to open up your heart, to make it so spacious that is utterly inclusive. In fact, when you open your heart, what that really means is you're connecting with your divine spark, with God who is outside of you and inside of you, in your heart. So to open the heart would mean that you're connecting with your higher self. So to transform the ego, open up the heart, and then to be of service to God's creation. So we, we want to talk about insights and practices 
and how to do that inner inconvenient work so we, we become more developed, complete as human beings. And then we can really experience surrender, a sense of peace, a sense of equanimity, for Christians, a feeling of being saved, only because we have done that work. Yeah, that's really helpful. There's a sense that in the mystical journey, God suddenly appears, right? Like you were saying, the morning and the evening are the thinly veiled times. And, you know, the sunrise, the veil is removed and that we've we come into the face of God. And sometimes, occasionally, rarely, there are flashes like that. But there's also this other component, which is doing the work. And I know you have done the work because you have all this roomy poetry memorized. It's imprinted on your heart. It just comes to you. Yeah. I don't know if that, I've done the work, but I've, since I love Rumi poetry, as Rumi says, it splashes in my heart. and It does leave an impression in my heart. But to come to your beautiful point you made, you know, Prophet Muhammad once said that God appeared to the prophet in a dream and said, this is a message for humanity, God says. God says, between me and you, there are no veils, but between you and me, there are 70,000 veils. So our work is to remove those veils. Mm to come in the proximity of presence. In fact, the Quran says, you know, what gives a human being the greatest joy, the greatest fulfillment, and the words are nearness to God. To be able to actually feel what the Sufi mystics call the glow of presence. It requires work, but it's also delightful work because you can feel the results of it. You feel that feeling that Christians would feel of be feeling saved, that Hindus and Buddhists call feeling freed, moksha, mukti, that Muslims would call a sense of surrendering. So you're at peace within yourself. Yeah. You've been a teacher for a long time and as a college teacher and, and doing your own teaching as a minister at Interfaith Community Sanctuary. Will you be teaching some practices for us in regards to how to be or how to pay attention and be aware of that glow of presence? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, and there are many different insights and practices, but the most critical one is to learn the majesty, the beauty of compassion, mercy, gentleness, mm -hmm. and then to do the work which I mentioned of through self-witnessing, transform the ego from a commanding master into a personal assistant, and then working on the heart. You know, Sufis call it polishing the heart, purifying the heart, so that when you take your heart to God, it is like a polished mirror and the face of Allah is reflected in it. It's also hard work. We were talking earlier another time, Brother Matt, that Rumi has this poetry, which I said at that time, Rumi says about the heart, take a pickaxe and break open your stony heart. The heart's matrix is glutted with rubies. Springs of laughter are buried in your chest. So that's another work of the heart we have to do. And that's very critical for spiritual students to embrace not only my 10,000 joys of life, but also my 10,000 sorrows of life. And that'll break open the heart, but make it so much more spacious, so much more space for love, intimacy, joy, to flow in. Yeah, I'm excited for this and I, I hope others are too. It's hard to say like, well, what will we be doing in this webinar? We will be creating an inner circle of trust 
we will be taking a pickaxe to our stony hearts to create spaciousness. But you've been teaching this for years and you... Prince hair was black. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and also the other teaching in Sufism is very important. Laughter, humor. To do everything with a sense of playfulness. I'll quote Hafiz because I love his verse. He says, what is this love and laughter bubbling up from within me? He says, listen to my answer. It's the sound of a soul waking up. In fact, the poet says, God wants to see more laughter and playfulness in your eyes because that is your greatest witness to divinity. So we want to experience a lot of joy in doing this work because we become more complete. We enjoy life much more. We can feel the happiness, that joy of ecstasy much more deeply because we have done that work of inner spaciousness. Yes, that's wonderful. This all sounds wonderful. Do you have a short practice that you could do with us? Maybe just something really brief that we could do here right now. There's a practice called sacred holding, which is very critical. I'll just explain it. We won't do it because it's... It takes some time. The idea here is that all feelings are sacred. The Quran says so. It comes from God. So the Islamic mystics say, if it comes from God, I repeat, all feelings are sacred. We give it a name. This is love. This is joy. This is ecstasy. This is hate. This is resentment. It's nothing but energy. And if I feel a negative energy, let's say I feel hate, the edge of that, I feel only because it is separated from me. It is begging to be acknowledged, number one. It is begging to be enveloped. It is begging to be kissed. It is begging to be integrated. That is how, through sacred holding, my rage, I mean, anger is good. Righteous anger is very necessary. But if I don't control it, if I'm not aware of it, if I don't manage it, it can turn into revenge. But if I do sacred holding, the pickaxe work, my anger becomes transformed very often into an inner enthusiasm. My fear, because I've kissed it, embraced it, integrated it, makes it more whole, my fear becomes more mindfulness. My sadness becomes greater empathy. But what is the practice? You know, I do it in that group of spiritual companions. We do it with one another. You know, Jamal, close your eyes. Allow yourself to feel that anger you felt. Where in your body do you feel it? Locate it. Then with compassion for yourself, just be with it. No need to fix it. No need to analyze it, but a great need just to be present with it. So I spend some time with that. If it moves, move with it. But I'm present with it. I'm honoring it. And then I can ask it some questions. Do you have a message for me? Do you have a secret you want to share with me? It's not that I'm expecting an answer, but I respectfully ask that question. And there may be another question, how may I love you? How may I befriend you? And the last part is focusing on that physical location and then making an intention to breathe through it, allowing the divine breath to caress me there. This simple practice, if I do it again and again and again, I can tell you with inner certainty, 
has incredible powers. Those negative, difficult, painful feelings I wanted to avoid, deny, they make me more complete as a human being. Why? Because I have acknowledged it. I have touched it, embraced it with compassion for myself, and I have integrated it. It becomes transformed. I become more complete as a human being. Which is why I, I love what Carl Jung said. Would you have the grace and the courage to kiss the demons and dragons within you? That is how they turn into a prince or princess. This is difficult work. Yeah. When the group of spiritual companions, when we do it, we guide one another in doing that with jealousy, with greed, with anger. Wow, what an impact it has. And these practices, you've been doing them for a long time. They, yes. they have come out of your spiritual practice and out of your, your engagement with sacred text and with the poetry of Rumi. And I wonder, has it helped you recently? Have you done sacred holding for yourself recently? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know, I get angry at the uh, state of the world, and especially with this pandemic, you feel anger for what's happening outside, a feeling of helplessness, but I don't allow it to make me negative. When I feel those feelings of anger, hopelessness, I mean, when I say anger, I'm talking about to feel that, or if I feel helpless, if I feel depressed, I will do sacred holding. It makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. And by the way, Matt, Sufis will insist, just as you do sacred holding, with difficult feelings, also make it a regular practice to do sacred holding with joyous feelings, happy feelings, peaceful feelings. Where am I feeling this joy? Just be with it and be grateful for it. And this really expands and opens up the heart. When I embrace that feeling that is life-giving, positive, life-affirming, and express gratitude for that, that also leaves an imprint on my being. Thank you for sharing that. And this is all making sense to me. This is this feels like such an invitation for us to really just explore our own mystic heart and our own mystical engagement with the divine. I want to come back to just the essence of Sufism and the surrendering to God, that you believe this mystic heart is for all of us, that we all have this ability. Absolutely. You know, and I love that, you know, you talk about surrender. A lot of Rumi's poetry is about, please, I beg you, understand the meaning of surrender to God. The Quran says, Allah is the best of providers. It goes on and on. So Rumi has this wonderful verse, which I repeat all the time. Rumi says, where will you find a customer like God who pays in gold, who accepts your counterfeit coins, Jamal, and buys your dirty, shabby bag of goods, and in return, gives a spiritual spring so delicious that even sugar is jealous of its sweetness. <laughs> he says, where would you find a market like this for one weak breath, the divine breath? For one little seed, the entire rose garden. So he says, I beg you, sell and buy at once. A lot of Rumi poetry to encourage us to understand the beauty, the power, the majesty of doing what is called this divine exchange. Yeah, I'm in for the, for the <laughs> exchange. I will bring my counterfeit coins and receive sweetness that makes sugar jealous. <laughs> so yeah. good. That's our invitation.
And I hope that all of you listening receive that invitation that we'll just be bringing ourselves in our authentic ways. That's everything. Our joys and our sorrows, our griefs, our angers, our frustrations. Yes, yes. And yeah. we, we want to work in the visible world and the invisible world. In fact, Rumi's advice to us is over a lifetime, work equally over a lifetime in the visible world and invisible world. I want to give one quick metaphor. He always talks about Rumi. Rumi says, our journey on life is like this, metaphorically. We are on this horse going to a certain destination. We cross rivers, we cross deserts, mountains, but now we come to a large body of water. This horse will not do. Now we need a silent, wooden, mystical horse to cross this body of water. So on this planet, in my life, I need two kinds of horses. One is in the visible world, and one is in the invisible world. So we want to keep that in mind to become a more complete, developed human being and to be able to embrace the fullness of life. It's beautiful. Thank you for being here. I'm gonna put a link to the webinar in the chat. So make sure you check out our four part webinar where we'll have an opportunity to kind of play in this divine mystical garden that you know so well. And so I'm personally really looking forward to it. I just wanna make that invitation open to all of you. Thank you, Brother Jamal, for your teaching and your holding space for us. Thank you, everybody, for participating today. And I, I hope that we will see you for our webinar. It starts July 8th, I believe. So we've got a couple of weeks for you to still sign up. Find info on that on our website, sdicompanions.org. Blessings, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast and you want to help us share and spread the word about the life-giving practice of spiritual companionship, you can help us out by subscribing to this podcast through your favorite app. You could give us a like or even write us a review. Thank you for listening. This is Matt Whitney with Spiritual Directors International. Thanks again for listening. Your time and your presence here are deeply appreciated. If you liked this show and would like us to continue making them, please do subscribe now while it's fresh on your mind. Also, we would love to hear from you, so please feel free to send in your comments and suggestions to the email address podcast at sdiworld.org. SDI is the home of spiritual companionship. Learn more about us and our work on our website, sdicompanions.org.